This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, for the hot question of the day, we have to talk about gas prices, right? I think in most places heading into the long weekend in Metro Vancouver anyway, you're looking at prices around $1.70 a litre. And consistently, it's been up there for the last month or so, right? You might be able on some days, if you go at the right time, at the right moment, get it for like $1.59 somewhere, but then the next morning, it's always right back up there again. I think that means a lot of people are kind of rethinking their habits when it comes to driving. And then comes this report from BC Hydro today, and it says that switching to an electric vehicle could save you thousands of dollars every year. Hydro says that the average commute in this province is 20 kilometers a day, okay? And driving an electric vehicle, according to BC Hydro, is six times less expensive than driving a gas-powered vehicle. That is the highest gap ever in this province. And of course, that has a lot to do with the way gas prices are right now. And here's the other thing. People have always said, well, we can't all drive an electric vehicle. Geez, that'll overload the system. No, BC Hydro says that they are ready for the move to electric cars. They said, listen, right now there's about 18,000 electric vehicles on the roads in BC. They're expecting that to increase to 350. 50,000 by 2030. And BC Hydro says this is something they are ready and planning for. And so they, they're they good for this. If you want to start thinking about buying an electric car, they are prepared. So that's what we're asking you for our hot question of the day today. Now that we know that BC Hydro says fueling an electric car is 80% cheaper than filling up at the pump, commuting 20 kilometers a day in a Nissan Leaf would cost just $2 a week. So Here's what we want to know. Do you see yourself buying an electric vehicle in the next five years? Do you say, yeah, I am so sick of gas prices the way they are. You're going to do it. You're committing. Or do you think, no, I'm not there yet. What's your answer to that? Now, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. You can go to our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899 and let us know your rationale there. Or you can very simply just vote. You can go to simisarah980 or at cknw on Twitter and cast your vote on this. We want to know, do you see yourself buying an electric vehicle in the next five years? I see myself doing this as a matter, I'm waiting. The only thing I'm waiting for at this point because my vehicle's about almost 10 years old now, I'm waiting for this next round of new electric vehicles to come out. There's a whole bunch of them that are supposed to be out for the 2020, 2021, like 2022 model year. So the next three years, we'll see all these new options available on the market. And I want to see what those ones are like before, you know, finally committing and doing that because we're so close to having way more variety when it comes to buying an electric vehicle. So I'm waiting I'm ready to do it. I've committed. My next vehicle will be an electric one. I've driven a hybrid before. For years, I drove a Ford Escape hybrid, gas electric. Loved that vehicle. It was fantastic. So I'm ready now to go full on electric. How about you? Let me know. Do you see yourself buying an electric vehicle in the next five years? Are you sick of gas prices or are you not there yet? Let me know. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Vote in our hot question of the day online or call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. You know, we're getting a lot of votes right now in our hot question of the day having to do with whether or not you are ready to buy an electric car. I'm actually quite surprised by how quickly these are coming in. I'm also surprised by how tight this thing is. We asked you, do you see yourself buying an electric vehicle in the next five years? 51% of people who've responded so far say yes, they're sick of gas prices. 
but 49% saying they're not quite there yet. So go ahead and cast your vote. And remember our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899 and have your say. You can also email me, uh, simi at cknw.com. Let me know how you're feeling about that or and please do vote as well. Now, the other big story that's developing right now has to do with the Canadian economy and a year-long standoff that we have been having with the Trump administration in the U.S. over punitive steel and aluminum tariffs that the United States had levied on Canada. They had used the excuse of national security, an excuse that Canada found, uh, well, disturbing, actually, and insulting, because we thought, wait a minute, our two borders are so closely intertwined. We share security. We share all of this information back and forth. And you're saying that we're a national security threat that you have to slap you know, tariffs on our steel and aluminum. It was a real sticking point. And it became a key hurdle in the efforts to try to ratify that new North American trade pact. Uh, And that was the reason why it wasn't happening, wasn't moving forward. Both Canada and Mexico had said, listen, these steel tariffs have to be dealt with first. Well, it sounds like this morning that that is just about over. Sources have said that this deal is done, that the tariffs are going to be lifted. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is making an unscheduled last-minute trip to Hamilton. That, of course, is Canada's steel manufacturing capital, and it is there that he is expected to confirm the breakthrough. Now, word of this kind of began to trickle out amid reports that uh, U.S. negotiators had kind of backed off these long-standing demands they had for a hard limit on the number of imports of Canadian steel and aluminum, and that was part of an effort to keep the cheaper kind of Chinese product out of the country, according to the Americans. So the Prime Minister and the President spoke by phone today to talk about this. This was their third conversation in less than a week, which was another indication that this thing was really moving along. And remember, it was a year ago that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said that these tariffs, 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum from both Canada and Mexico, he said that they were necessary to prevent a flood of Chinese steel into the United States through its NAFTA partner countries. The Ross had also admitted that this was kind of part of their negotiating strategy strategy, even though they were claiming it was national security, which allowed them to do this. Uh, now, we are going to hear what the Prime Minister had to say about this, or is about to say about this. Uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, meanwhile, was asked about this by reporters in just the past few minutes, and here's what he had to say. We were disappointed that Justin Trudeau was not able to uh, fix this issue during the NAFTA negotiations, why he was in such a position of weakness that he was forced to accept so many concessions from Donald Trump uh, without addressing this issue. So we'll look at the, the, the details that's announced today. Obviously what, we're, what we would expect uh, would be uh, no tariffs and no quotas. That's, uh, that is a very important uh, issue for Canadians uh, to ensure that we can continue to uh, grow the industry and have, uh, and have access to U.S. markets. What if there are quotas? Well, obviously, that'll be disappointing. That is Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. So we are waiting to get the exact details from the Prime Minister on this. But in the meantime, let's get some more information on the analysis and perspective on this. Ian Lee joins us, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks for being back with us. My, my, my great pleasure. Now, we have a sounds like we have a deal. Are you surprised it took this long? Uh, I am, uh, quite frankly. Um, I mean, I understand the the long drawn out uh, nature of the negotiations between the U.S. and China. Um, you know, two superpowers, uh, you know, dancing away, and I mean, having some real fights. Uh, but we are loyal uh, allies and partners of the United States, and have been literally for a century. 
So uh, this was quite surprising uh, because we are not engaged in the kind of um, illegal behavior that China has been accused of and many people believe China is guilty of uh, in terms of uh, cheating under the WTO. Canada is not doing that. Canada did not do that before. And so it, it was a surprise that he put the tariffs on in the first place, and then it was a surprise that it, they stayed on for so long. Uh, so that the this is not... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's better that they're coming off, but right. this is not a good news story overall. So, but why now, do you think? Like, all of a sudden, it seemed to happen very quickly yeah. in the last week. What happened that changed? Was it the ramping up of the trade war with China? No, no, I, I, don't, I think it was domestic politics in the United States. Um, it's been widely reported, and I mean just in the last three or four or five days, out of Washington, that the leaders in the Congress and I'm referring to the House of Representatives, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is the de facto opposition leader in the United States uh, as the leader of the Democrats, uh, the majority leader, and she made it absolutely crystal clear that she was not going to allow NAFTA to be able, uh, uh, to be uh, uh, to come to a vote in the House of Reps, and and Trump finally realized she was not backing down, she wasn't playing games. And why that's important to Trump is that that meant he would not be able to go on the campaign trail and brag that, hey, I solved the worst trade deal in the world. I don't believe that, by the way, but that's what Donald Trump has right. been saying for two, three years. He's saying NAFTA was a terrible, terrible deal. And he's saying, and I fixed it, except that he didn't fix it if it's bottled up and holed up in a committee and not coming up for a vote. And he needs it to be approved by the U.S., Congress, so he can brag that he fixed the old NAFTA and he closed the deal on the new one. And he can't do that until it gets out. And Pelosi has said, until you address the problem of tariffs, I'm not going to let that happen. So it all became interconnected. Okay, so now that he's done this, we're just waiting for the official word on it, which will come momentarily from the United States. Does that mean that A, this new deal will come to a vote, and B, will it pass? It's a lot closer. Uh, coming to a vote than before, because Pelosi is is absolutely key to this happening. There is uh, strong opposition in her own party. Um, you know, when Trump said it was the worst deal uh, in in history, remember, Senator Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party has been saying something awfully similar for a very long period of time. And there are other Democratic leaders who believe that. Having said that, there are, there's support in the Republican Party in the, in the House, and there are Democratic uh, congressmen and women who do uh, will support it. So uh, let's just say, I, I'm not predicting it's going to pass the House, but I'm saying it's a lot closer, and the chances have gone up significantly as a consequence of today's announcement that the tariffs are being lifted. Right, like a key reason that Donald Trump was elected was that appeal to people when he said these trade deals were horrible. Will that same group of people, do you think, now buy that he has fixed them? I, I, um, his base, and I'm referring to the Rust Belt states, and you know, uh, I have driven through those Rust Belt states. A couple of years ago, I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, about seven, eight hours drive from uh, Ottawa, and uh, drove through a lot of these, and they were all Rust Belt states I was driving through. And this was actually the uh, 2016, which was the election year. And the support there for Donald Trump is unbelievable in these Rust Belt states. They believe in him, unlike any other Republican or Democratic leader. So now to answer your question, 
I think that, a, I'm not saying every last person, but I think there's going to be a very strong majority of his base. They're going to say, you know, I trust Donald. I trust that he says he solves and fixed the deal. Plus, they see him every day uh, on the television, and of course, they see the tweets, and they see him standing up to China every day and standing up to the Germans and, of course, the Mexicans and the Canadians. And so the irony is all of these tariffs reinforced Trump's brand of an, a man of action who was going to actually do something about it and not just talk about it as he accused other leaders of doing, both Democratic and Republican. So I think he's got political capital with his base. I think they believe him and trust him mm -hmm. on the trade agreement. They're not trade agreement wonks or, or specialists. They're not going to go start reading it line by line. And if, they, if Trump stands up, which he is doing, and saying, hey, I fixed it, I solved the problem, I think they're going to, they're going to go with him and they're going to trust him and, and, and support him. And therefore, uh, you know, I think the Democrats in the Congress are going to be very leery of... Um, of, of challenging Trump on that when the when the base thinks he is delivering the bacon. Now is that good news for Canada then? If the if the president has so much invested in getting this thing passed mm -hmm. and campaigning on it, then is that good for us? I believe it is. And uh, and I full disclosure, when I first started teaching, I got my job offer in 1988, and we were right in the middle of a trade election. I remember, yeah. John Turner and uh, the fight of my life against Brad Mulroney. And I was invited, uh, because I was already known then, to be a free trader and supporter of free trade. And I was uh, invited not to candidates' meetings, but before that to um, you know town hall meetings, um, high schools and so forth. And I actually debated uh, uh, the, uh, the anti-side that, that said that we were going to be forced to close down our health care. Bob Marlowe and the Council of Canadians. And uh, so I, I do believe that trade agreements are good for Canada. We really do need one with uh, the largest economy in the world, which is right next door. And ironically, Donald Trump has proved the argument for trade agreements even more strongly. Why? Because the, there's, well, the whole point of a trade agreement, if it's well done, is that it will restrain and constrain people acting in a rogue manner like Trump. Now, some will say, well, wait a minute, it didn't stop him from putting in the Section 232 tariffs. And nothing can stop a president from, you know, doing anything, but at least it will slow them down and constrain them. And, and so uh, that's why I think it's good for Canada. And secondly, it did modernize NAFTA. That is to say, back in 1993, I mean, it doesn't sound that long ago, but then I remind everybody, the Internet as we know it didn't exist in 93, meaning there was no browsers. That meant there was no e-commerce. There was yeah. no online banking. <laughs> there was no financial services online. There was no digital business or digital media of any meaningful uh, size. And so entire economies and, and, and sectors and industries have grown up since 93 and and it needed badly uh, badly needed updating and and so I'm, i i i wish i think the, the the new nafta could have been better yeah. but it's better than the old nafta and is better than no nafta so uh, this is progress what about the quota issue as well there's a lot of concern that perhaps we agreed to quotas I, I do that. That is a real serious concern. I mean, Trump clearly is a fan of so what's called managed trade. You know, where you okay, I give you a quota and you can sell so much of your stuff to us, and vice versa. And this is anathema that to. I mean, just absolutely the opposite of what trade and co uh, agreements and competitiveness means. And so I, I'm afraid he is 
moving in that direction, both with the Chinese and with his trading partners. And this is not good that governments determine how much trade occurs. It should be determined by the buyers and the sellers and the consumers of the products. Uh, but, you know, it, this is what we pro- may have to live with so long as Donald Trump is president. Okay, but a big update today then. Ian, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks very much. That's Ian Lee, Associate Professor of these at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, uh, talking about the fact that it sounds like we're about to get confirmation. Uh, and sources have already done this, so it is pretty much a done deal here. We're just waiting for like the official word. And, you know, politicians, they like to have the backdrop, make the big deal out of that. So I'm sure they're rapidly trying to set that up. But it sounds like uh, there is a breakthrough between the Canada-United uh, States trade deal that has been much talked about, agreed upon, but has hung up on this issue of steel and aluminum tariffs that the United States had imposed a year ago on Canada and Mexico, the two biggest trading partners that the country has. And uh, it looks like those have been lifted, but does it mean quotas? What's in us? What's going to happen? Those are the details we are still waiting to get, but could be a very, very big win for the Canadian steel and aluminum industry, but we'll keep you posted on that. Just as we actually went to break, the official announcement was made that, yes, the tariffs are being lifted uh, against steel and aluminum, and in, in exchange for that, Canada will eliminate all of the tariffs that we had imposed in retaliation uh, for those steel and aluminum tariffs. So the agreement says the United States and Canada agree to eliminate no later than two days from today's date uh, all tariffs the United States imposed under Section 232 on imports of steel and aluminum products from Canada and all tariffs Canada imposed in retaliation for the Section 232 uh, action. The United States and Canada also agree to terminate all pending litigation between them in the World Trade Organization regarding those steel and aluminum tariffs. And it goes on to say the United States and Canada will implement effective measures to prevent the importation of steel and aluminum that is unfairly subsidized and or sold at dumped prices and prevent the transshipment of steel and aluminum made outside of Canada or the United States to the other country. It says Canada and the United States will consult together on these measures. So there's no quota listed in here. There's a lot of consultation, but that is kind of the, just the three main points out of the agreement that was just released by Canada and the United States. That will come as a big relief to a lot of people in this country. I mean, those steel and aluminum tariffs were a, a, a huge sticking point. Uh, so this means that that can flow freely again within two days, it says the elimination of those tariffs. It also means that the negotiated uh, free trade agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico can move forward. And once it goes for a vote or gets put up for a vote in the United States, it can do the same here in Canada and, uh, you know, get this thing moving forward. How do you feel about that? Good news for you, do you think? Uh, Want to weigh in with your thoughts? You can email me on that, simi at cknw.com. As well, you can use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. Things really got ramped up trade-wise in the last week, uh, as we heard from Ian Lee, between Canada and the United States. And the United States has a lot going on on the trade front right now. They've got uh, a trade disagreement with China. I've, I've seen some people calling it the trade war, but let's just say it went very sideways. 
uh, between the United States and China. Ten days ago, they were talking about re- ready to sign on the dotted line. They, they had a deal. It would have been remarkable. Uh, and now they do not. And both sides are kind of digging in on that one. So this is a much needed win for the U.S. when it comes to settling its trade disputes and getting things moving forward. We're going to be hearing a lot more about it. All right, let's talk about electric cars, shall we? Because it certainly is a hot topic today. It's because a new survey by BC Hydro has found that commuting in an electric car in the Metro Vancouver area is cheaper than ever. Driving around 20 kilometers a day in a Honda Civic, that's the top-selling sedan in Canada, would cost six times more than doing the same commute in a Nissan Leaf, which is the top-selling electric car. So on the John McComb show this morning, BC Hydro spokesperson uh, Maura Scott explained the cost savings of switching to an electric vehicle. She calls them like EV. We took a close look at the cost to commute and popular gas-powered models um, and found that making the switch to an EV can offer significant savings. And basically the reason behind this is because um, the fuel cost in an EV is around the equivalent of about $0.25 cents a litre, so it's about 80% less than what gas prices are right now. So if you were to commute about 20 kilometres a day in a Nissan Leaf, that would actually only cost you about $2 a week, which is pretty interesting because it's less than you know the typical cup of coffee for a British Columbian. And then when you look at, at you know, a further distance, so um, someone commuting from Surrey to downtown Vancouver, which is about an 80 kilometer round trip a day. Um, if you look at it over the course of a year, the savings add up really quickly. So a Honda Civic is going to cost you about $1,800 more. Toyota RAV4 will cost you about $2,100 more. And then if you were in a bigger vehicle like a Ford F-150, you're looking at about $3,400 more a year. Not some pretty big savings, right? That's more with Scott from BC Hydro. It's no surprise then that many people are thinking that, you know what, in the next couple of years, they would like to take the plunge and switch to an electric vehicle. Is this a good time to do it? What do we need to know? That's what we're going to talk about with Neil McEachran, who's the Program Manager of Plugin BC, provides supports to people and groups looking to transition to electric vehicles. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Are you guys pretty busy these days? Like, are lots of people asking about this? Uh, Certainly, we're seeing more interest than we have historically, yes. Uh, I mean, that's due in no small part to the additional incentives that have been introduced by the federal government. But also, I think a big part of that is the price of gas. Uh, People are sick of paying $1.70 a litre and are looking for a more cost-effective and more environmentally friendly alternative. So what do people need to know before they take that plunge? Well, uh, a very important thing to uh, make sure you've got lined up is just how you're going to be charging the vehicle. Uh, What you need is really going to depend on how far you commute and how much you use your vehicle. So if, for example, you are doing that uh, 20-kilometer-a-day commute, really uh, a standard 110-volt plug, like, uh, you know, what you plug your cell phone or your computer into is going to be more than adequate to meet your needs. But if you are doing uh, a longer commute, if you're coming in from, say, you know, Chilliwack, for example, you're probably going to want uh, what they call level two charging, which uses uh, the same power level as like a stove or a dryer. Um, and that'll give you kind of 35 kilometers of uh, range per hour of charging. And that will be able to meet your needs then. Right. Is that, do you think, still the holdup for a lot of people is the length of time it takes to charge? Uh, I think that's a big part of it. And I think uh, additionally, people just aren't really accustomed to the idea of uh, not having to go to a gas station. Uh, they they often, I think, consider an EV but are afraid that they won't be able to charge it somewhere. And uh, it hasn't really sunk in until they've had one for a while that 
oh, it's more like a cell phone. You plug it in when you get home at the end of the day, and it's fresh and good to go in the morning. Right. What about the cost of maintenance, though? I've had a lot of questions about that today as well. It's like, okay, sure, but what about the cost of the battery and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's uh, certainly a good question. Uh, I think what we've seen borne out so far from various studies that have been done by fleets that are running electric vehicles is that the operating costs have, to this point, borne out to be substantially lower because you don't need to do oil changes. Uh, you have far fewer moving parts. You don't have, uh, you know, a, an alternator, for example. You don't have, uh, you know, tappets and dual overhead cam and all these extra pieces that you need uh, to maintain in a combustion engine vehicle. You've got a very kind of simple motor and a battery. And uh, yes, the, the battery is certainly something that uh, that does have a large cost attached to it. But the de- battery degradation that we've seen over time in um uh, you know, things like Teslas and, and other vehicles that have um, longer range batteries and uh, more advanced kind of battery conditioning systems is that you see a little bit of range loss in the first couple of years and then it kind of flatlines out and there's very little degradation after kind of the first year or so. And what about ever like cars needing a new battery? When does that happen? Uh, so for most vehicles, they, they haven't had that requirement yet. Um, you know, certainly if there's kind of a quality control issue or something, uh, just like in a regular vehicle, um, these will be replaced under warranty. But uh, we aren't seeing the kind of substantial failures that uh, that people might associate with kind of a cell phone battery. And that's because in an electric car, the battery has systems to keep it at a, an even temperature, to keep it from being overcharged, and uh, to keep it running a long time. Right. I, I feel like people have been saying that ever since, right? We started using cars that had these big batteries in them. They've been saying, oh, but what about when you got to switch that battery out? I mean, I had uh, a hybrid for almost eight years and it, we never had a battery problem. So do you feel sometimes that might be a little bit overblown? Uh, I think so. And I think, you know, the, the very first iterations of electric vehicles, uh, they didn't have as advanced systems to manage the batteries and and that may have led to some premature failures. But in terms of the later generation of vehicles, what we've seen in the last couple of years, it hasn't seemed to have been a problem at all. Okay. What about programs to buy them? Like right now, are there a lot of incentives to do this as well? Certainly, it's a really great time to get into an electric vehicle. Uh, there are incentives not only from the, the federal government. We've got a, you know, a $5,000 federal incentive. There's also a $5,000 provincial incentive. And those can be stacked, taking $10,000 off the sticker price of the car. And in addition to that, uh, there's also a program that's being run um, through a, a group of partners that's offering free charging stations for people's homes. And, uh, you know, by the time you factor in all of those things, you can have uh, substantial savings that really make it um, cost comparable to a combustion engine vehicle, but with those incredibly lower um, operating costs once you buy it. Right. How long do those, are, are those incentives going to last for? Well, that's uh, that's a good question. Uh, the provincial incentive originally for $5,000 ran out yesterday, but has been topped up with another $10 million, and that will continue to be assessed by the provincial government as we go along. But historically, they have been uh, very committed to, to renewing it and making sure that it is there for people who are relying on it to be able to afford one. And uh, the, the federal $5,000, uh, well, that one's a new one, but uh, the federal government does seem committed to uh, maintaining it for at least some time. 
Okay. Now, Neil, I was thinking that, you know what, I like my next car, I definitely want it to be an electric vehicle, but aren't there a whole bunch of new models coming out in the next couple of years? Uh, yeah, certainly that's uh, something we're seeing a lot. And I think one of the reasons we've had such an uptick in interest is we've seen so many new cars come on the market this year. And, uh, and of course, we'll continue to see more coming in the next couple of years. And uh, I guess you know people who are considering buying now versus waiting, uh, there's the certainty of having the incentives now that may not be there down the road. So the, ah. there's the, the opportunity to strike while the iron is hot if you get one now. But, uh, you know, if, if people are a little bit more cautious, uh, there, there, of course, are going to be more and more coming on the market with, uh, you know, different properties and, um, you know, different styles that might meet different lifestyles needs. But, uh, again, there is that kind of, are we going to have the incentives then? So maybe it's worth getting one now. So I'm looking at a whole bunch of them right now. And so it looks like the average price is about $45,000. So you're saying that with all these incentives, it's more like $35,000. That's correct. Well, why wouldn't somebody say yes to that? <laughs> well, again, I think it's just, you know, uh, that uncertainty. People are not as familiar with it. But I think once people get behind the wheel of it, uh, they realize uh, not only does it not feel that different to drive, uh, the things that do make it different actually make it more fun to drive because you do have that kind of instant pickup, that, that real peppiness of the electric motor as well as uh, just the, the very smooth and quiet operation that uh, you know allows you to hear your sound system better. Yeah, I guess so. All right. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Listen, Neil, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you for having me. That is Neil McEachran, who's the program manager of Plugin BC. Uh, that's a group that provides supports to people and groups who are looking to transition to electric vehicles. Now, many people have written me since we started talking about this this morning. And the big thing they've been saying is, all oh, the price, still too expensive. Well, from what Neil just said there, take that list price that you're looking at and take $10,000 off of it because that's how much of an incentive the different levels of government are providing right now to get people into electric vehicles. And in the next year or so, you're going to see quite a few new models come on the market that are actually cheaper than what we are seeing right now because more and more of these uh, automakers are turning to electric vehicles. In fact, there's a just like you wouldn't believe how many in the next two model years that are going to whether it's Ford, Hyundai, Kia, like you name it, they're all coming out with these. Oh, this is going to be a good one. We've got a question for you today about the biggest mistake you have ever made on the job. And well, there's a very good reason why we're talking about this. It's going to be explained to us right now with the help of Claire Allen. Hi, Claire. Good morning, Simi. Good morning. Now, I love this topic because everybody, I think, at some point has made a huge mistake on the job. Oh, Claire, yes. have you done this? I have. But you know what? When we were talking about this, I realized that my mistake kind of went unnoticed, but the internal pain was quite deep. Oh, well, unnoticed, and that doesn't count. I don't know. It, it was very embarrassing. So what happened to me, uh, before we get into the story about what happened uh, with the, in the UK, is I used to work at Pottery Barn, and I was like the Oh, yeah, this is so funny. <laughs> the <laughs> greeter at Pottery Barn. And at the time, my friend's sister lived nearby, and they had a rabbit. This is quite the, takes quite the turn, these stories. Yes. Uh, and the rabbit uh, needed someone while they were away to check on the rabbit, see what's all doing. So I uh, went over on my break to check on this rabbit, and I was so tired. You know, I was like, yeah. Young, still had partying a pretty, too yeah, much. Exactly. Still yeah. had like an active life. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, I'll just lay down for a couple minutes. I think I fell asleep for like two and a half hours. Wait a minute, you forgot <laughs> to go back to work? Not on purpose. 
But yeah, I did. You slept so, through the rest of your shift. Almost all of it. And so that I like sheepishly, sheepishly like sauntered back into uh, work and I was so embarrassed and like nobody said anything. I was like, oh. Tell me they didn't notice. Did I get away with this? But of course, because like I just felt so bad. I went to apologize to my manager and he was like, oh, I didn't even notice. And I was like, oh, Claire, also got away with it. didn't bode well for your job if they didn't notice whether you I, were there or not. I mean, I was a greeter. How I get just like I'm not doing an essential service. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. The reason why we're talking about this is the story out of the UK. What, this is spectacular. Tell us about this. Right. So restaurant work is very demanding. It's quite yes. intense. And uh Working in a restaurant, you know, the industry's not known for being very kind and understanding. It's high pressure. But uh, a restaurant recently tweeted out sort of like a chin-up message to an employee that had made a quite the costly error. So what happened is that at this a diner at Hawksworth Moor Manchester, which is like a steak restaurant, okay. the equivalent of the keg, we'll say, in the UK, ordered a bottle of wine. Now, what they ordered was, uh, I'm going to attempt to pronounce this, a 2001 Chateau Pichon Longueville Contessa de la Lande, which is 260 pounds. So that's 444 Canadian dollars. Expensive, right? Still an expensive, expensive bottle, bottle of wine. So $450 bottle of wine, well, yeah. Here's what happened, Simi. This waitress or waiter was, you know, it was a busy night. They were a little stressed out. They reached for a bottle, thought they got the uh, 2001 Chateau Pichon, and realized instead, well, the manager realized instead what happened is that they handed them a similar vintage of wine, uh, the Chateau Le Pen Pomeral 2001. Total cost for that bottle, 4,500 pounds. And so the late the waiter or waitress uncorked it, poured <gasps> it into the the, uh, the people's glass, charged them for the cheaper bottle of wine. So they got a $450 bottle of... They, no, they, they got, got a $7,000 bottle of wine. 7,000 Canadian bottle of wine. For and they $450 paid $450. Bucks. And so the... Holy <laughs> moly. I've been a waitress and I know I would just... If I had realized what I had done... I would probably just have walked off the job and be like, well, uh, this, is, this is the end for me. Yeah. Exactly. But so what the restaurant did is they tweeted out saying uh, to the customer who accidentally got given a bottle of Chateau Le Pin Pomeral 2001, which is 4,500 pounds on our menu last night. Hope you enjoyed your evening. To the member of staff who accidentally gave it away, chin up. One-off mistakes happen and we love you anyway. Unbelievable. That's very nice. That is fantastic. So they, good employee, mistakes happen. I mean, obviously she can't do that again. Well, I don't think he or she ever will. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They will, she will be, they will be looking twice at every bottle. But um, uh, people on social media were saying like, this mistake is unforgivable. And the restaurant was saying, no, no, like she's a great, or he or she's a great uh, employee. employee. And you know, these mistakes happen. It was a busy night. It's probably dimly lit in a steakhouse and they could see how this had happened. I am so impressed by the restaurant's response to this. Uh, so you mentioned yours where yes. you made that mistake and your manager also sounded very forgiving. Well, I don't think he or he noticed, but you know, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> and did you ask other people about this? I did. Yes. We have a montage of uh, some other big mistakes on the job. When I was in university, I worked on Parliament Hill, and part of my job was passing messages and keeping track of the 308 MPs in the chamber. And once I got Jason Kenney, now the Premier of Alberta, and a different MP mixed up. And let me tell you, Jason Kenney did not seem amused to be called somebody else's name. I thought that I had pressed the off button, but it, but I still had my finger on the on button, and I went off. F-bomb. 
And I、uh, threw to the traffic, and I was sitting there, and I was getting a little bored because it had gone on for a little while. So I decided to、um, take a look at this new David Attenborough、uh, documentary that was happening. It was about whales. So the whales start breaching, and whoo, whoo, and it was just a beautiful documentary. Then all of a sudden, I was alerted to the fact that it was going to air. I was working for Todd Hancock on his show, and his partner on air, Karen Kuhn Kuhn, was leaving to go to the morning show. So he had this big thing planned, like it was like this emotional speech he was reading out. And I looked down, and I didn't turn the pod on, so like none of it was going to air. So I was talking with some coworkers about what it would be like if we use an eggplant emoji as a signature, just as a joke. And then I was going to test it by sending my coworker this email with an eggplant emoji, and it went to the wrong person, who's a very high-profile global employee. I remember that. I remember when that happened because that wasn't that long ago. We all looked at him like, "What did you just do? Why would you even do this at work? <laughs> What were you thinking?" It's very funny. Oh my god! And mine was very similar to John McCombs. There, John McCombs pointing out that he forgot to turn his microphone off, and he swore. I forgot to turn my microphone off, and I said what I really, what I thought about、uh, a politician that we had just interviewed, and that did not end well either. That was a pretty big mistake. Yes, I remember because I was you the were producer, the producer the time, and I got the phone call. Yes. <laughs> so everybody has made a mistake. I guess we want to know what everybody's、uh, worst mistake is at work. Yours, actually, Claire. I'm going to be honest. Wasn't that bad? Falling asleep on the jobs. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Nobody noticed.、Though. I know, but still, like, imagine if they had. <laughs> imagine if they had. Well, you're still young. You might still have your worst mistake ahead of you. I could still fall asleep here. Who knows? <laughs> She's come close sometimes.、Uh, thank you for、thank、that.、You. That is Claire Allen. Well, we are talking about the worst mistake you've ever made on the job, and we're doing this because of that story that you probably heard about out of the UK this week. There's a restaurant there where one of the servers was supposed to serve somebody a four hundred and fifty dollar bottle of wine.、Uh, by accident, served them a bottle of wine that was worth seven thousand dollars, and of course, it wasn't noticed until it had been consumed. And the restaurant said about the server, "Hey." One-off mistakes happen. We love you anyway, and we thought, man, that is some understanding boss. What about you, though? What's the worst mistake you've ever made at work, and how did your boss respond? Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight. Let's start with Alex in Delta. Hi, Alex. Hi there. How you doing? Good. Thanks. What'd you do? Got a good story? Oh God.、Um, <laughs> I went back and reclaimed my citizenship from Greece. Over、okay. there, you have to do the military military service. So one day when I was on guard duty, nobody was else around me. I put my gun down. I put off, took off my helmet, took off my other stuff, and kind of fell asleep.、Oh. All of a sudden, somebody—I heard something honk once, honk twice, and then the third honk. When I opened up my eyes, well, who wasn't my commanding officer of the army base? Well, he just looked at me, kind of looking like, "What are you doing?" I put on my helmet, put my gun on. Walked around the corner and just kind of put down my head. <laughs> oh no! Did anything happen? Um, I would have got, as they say, jail time. That's more military service on top of your original time. But because I fell ill, I kind of got away with it. But otherwise, I would have been. Yeah, you would have been hooped essentially. Oh, big time! Oh boy! Time. Okay, <laughs> that's not. It stuck with you though, didn't it, Alex? Oh God, did it ever! Okay, thank <laughs> you for that story. That is a good one. Alex fell asleep on the job, and his commanding officer in the army caught him. Not pleasant. What's your story? What's the worst mistake you've ever made on the job? Howard is with us. Hi, Howard. 
Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. What do you got? What's your story, Howard? Well, I think I can top yours and, and Claire's. Um, many, many years ago, I was a young promotions guy working with the casino at the PE. Okay. And we had the old BC building. There was 2,000 people there, and I was running the promo booth and making all the announcements on the uh, intercom. Um, well, on August 31st, we had heard that Princess Di was in an accident, and everybody kept coming to me, being the guy who had the radio, right. what's happening, what's the update, etc. So I was telling people, finally, I heard she had passed away. So I mistakenly get on the speaker oh, to no. 2,000 people and say, ladies and gentlemen, just want to let you know you've been asking. Princess Di has passed away, but good luck, everyone. I had my boss chasing me so fast. Uh, the funny thing was people looked up and went, did we really hear that? And then they went back to business. So at least we didn't have massive Nobody's rushing out. That's all. <laughs> that is a good one. That is a good one. Howard, thank you for that. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, telling everybody about the death of Princess Diana and then telling them to have a good time. That's a bit awkward. Let me go to Doug in Langley. Hi, Doug. Hi, Sammy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. What'd you do? You got a good story? Yeah, so I was pretty fresh out of high school. I think I was about 18 years old. And I worked for one of the major banks in the back office, the Cash Operations Center. And okay. this was back when internet was sort of just being invented and applied and a lot of loose ends. But So we had access to the system because we had to process all the ATM transactions that came through. And I guess I pressed Control-Alt-Delete or Alt-Tab <gasps> or something. And I don't really know what I did, but um, about two days later, uh, I remember like security came in and I was marched into the vice president's office. It was very scary. And they uh, kind of drilled me and asked me all these questions. And then afterwards, I guess they figured it was innocent. And they said that I crashed the whole ATM system for about 24 hours across Canada. And it like, you know, cost the bank quite a lot of money. You did this? And, yeah, I guess I did. They said I did. And uh, they... Uh, so I thought, well, that's it. I guess I'm fired. I was only 18. And and in fact, no, they said, no, we want to keep you around because, uh, and they promoted me and then they wanted to analyze everything I did so they could fix it and make sure they closed the gap. And it was kind of a really interesting turnaround. I thought, oh, game over for me. Wow. And so they, they used you as an example, but in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive, yeah. Doug. That was fun. No, well, not lesson. fun for the people good who couldn't story. get their money, but that's a great story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Doug. Not funny for the people who tried to go to the ATM that day, but great learning opportunity for Doug on that one. Let me go to Donna. Hi, Donna. Hi, Simi. Uh, my story is uh, I was a, an almost graduate hair student at a hair school many years ago. Okay. And I was chosen to fill in for a hairdresser at her shop in a hotel and one of the customers that came in, she had, I remember, very dark, thick hair, which had me kind of flustered to begin with. She wanted a perm, so I wrapped her all up with the perm, set her in the sink to rinse her off, sat her back in the chair, and I realized partway through the process that I had forgotten to put the neutralizer on oh, her. No. So the, oh, the no. perm would not be a perm very long. And uh, I went back to the school to to finish up my last few weeks, whatever. But no one ever said anything to me after that. She told me this woman's perm lasted like a couple of days? Well, maybe even a couple hours. I have no idea. And she'd probably spent a couple hours sitting there getting it done. Yes, and she had so much hair. I was just, what do I do with all this hair? And I was still a student, right? Oh, my goodness. And nobody ever said anything? No one said a word. All right, you got away with that one. Well, I did, but I think of it a lot. I'll bet you do. And I'll bet if you ever had to give a perm again, do it again, you never forgot the neutralizer. 
Oh, I've given many perms since and never forgot the new There you go. Again. Lesson learned. Donna, thank you so much for that. Let me go to John. Hi, John. Hi. What's the haps? What's the haps? What's the story? What do you got? I used to be a programmer analyst at UBC for 40 years. One of my uh, systems I wrote and supported was the United Way system. Okay. And uh, whenever we sent out letters with uh, labels on them, you had the name of the employee and uh, where they worked. I had to make a change that quickly that evening because uh, physical plant had subsidiary uh, divisions like sheet metal, gardener, electrician, whatever. And that would be easier for them to distribute the uh, donation forms. Okay. Um, I made the change, tested it. Letters went out. I got a call next morning from the president's secretary. And she's laughing so hard. This is in the early 80s when budgets were cut and everybody was tense. Yeah. And she said... uh, the president is laughing so hard he can't see straight, and so is all the staff. The letter went to President uh, Smith, President's office, Gardner. <laughs> you put the wrong titles on everybody's well, envelope? I forgot to clear out the designation from physical plant. So everybody was getting the subsidiary division codes uh, descriptions on there. So I was getting calls from financial service girls who were in labor. <laughs> That would have been quite a mix-up. So what did what and happened? Everybody was so happy, especially the president's office, because uh, all the tenseness of budget cuts and layoffs. Uh, this added the frivolity. And that evening, the president showed up at the games room where my friend, uh, academic friends, and myself were having a beer. He came over to the table, sat down, bought everybody a beer, and said that was the best time anybody had in the president's office during these. <laughs> budget constraints. You know what, John, it's also conceivable. You may have saved some jobs because they realized if we cut back, this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen, right? And when the boss came down to my uh, office, closed the door, she said, did you test it? I looked her straight in the eye and I said, yes. She turned around, walked out. If I'd have said anything else, I was gone. (laughs) I just know it. (laughs) John, thank you so much for that story. That is a good one. We are talking about mistakes that you made at work. What is the biggest, worst mistake that you've made at work and how was it dealt with, like by your boss, by other people? Uh, Call our buzz line if you've got one of these stories. We had a lot of them from the people here that we work with, actually. Uh, But you can call our buzz line, uh, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. And let us know how that worked out for you. Sometimes it works out well, other times not so much, right? So let us know what's the worst mistake that you have ever made at work. Now, this discussion that we are about to have here, I'm going to give a little bit of a warning about this. Once again, we're going to talk about this story about the video footage that's caused so much anger in the past week. And so the discussion, the audio, all of that, it may be distressing for some listeners. You may find it upsetting. So listener discretion is advised. So let's go back to the story in regards to the video footage that everyone is talking about with anger. This is the footage of an RCMP officer in Kelowna interviewing an underage Indigenous teenager who is trying to tell him that she has been sexually assaulted. Uh, She is in the care of the child welfare system at the time of this video. But the line of questions asked by the police officer is it has gotten people so angry. Uh, Once again, we're going to give you, play you a little clip of this, but a warning, it could be upsetting for some people and it's running for about a minute or so. Have a listen. Were you at all turned on during this at all, even a little bit? Physically, you weren't at all responsive to his advances, even maybe um, subconsciously? Maybe subconsciously, but no, not, I was really scared. Okay, because you understand that when 
a guy tries to have sex with a female and the female is completely unwilling, it's very difficult, right? Yeah, yeah, it hurt a lot. It hurt a lot at the beginning? For the whole thing. Is part of the reason you came up with this in the first place and told us about and told your foster dad about this is because you were scared you might be pregnant and you needed the pill? No, it was more because I just got taken advantage of and I didn't consent to it. I was just really scared at the time. I don't want you to lie. I want no lies. I'm not lying, though. I didn't consent to this. Outrageous. Outrageous. Every time I hear this, it makes my blood boil. I mean, there have been political denunciations of this, uh, but what the RCMP haven't really responded forcefully, I would say, on this particular topic, but we wanted to talk more about it today. Joining us is Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafon, lawyer, judge, former child representative for BC. We've spoken to her many times now, professor at UBC's School of Law. Uh, Mary Ellen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. I'm sure you heard a lot about this today. I was thinking about the date on this story, too. I mean, 2012, that was right around the time that you were bringing a lot of cases like this to light. Yes, Simi, and this is uh, one of the cases I did report on. I did a comprehensive report, one of my last reports as I was leaving 10 years serving BC um, on sexualized violence against children in care. Um, And this case was one of the more than 100 cases I reported on of sexualized violence against those kids, uh, including reporting on issues like investigations, police interviews, and so forth that were substandard. So this went on to a civil lawsuit, and the material became disclosed to the B.C. courts because the young woman at the centre of that matter has since sued uh, with respect to the treatment that she received in care. Now, she didn't, she was in care, she didn't have a representative with her. Like, how many failings in the system do you see in that case? Well, this case, um, because I can, I was aware of it, um, I think it's emblematic of a, a very serious problem, which is, first of all, you know, blaming the victim is something that we need to be very careful about here. But the idea about, you know, did you enjoy it? You sure you didn't want this? You sure you're not lying? These questions perpetuate certain sort of myths about sexual abuse and sexual victimization of young people. Uh, and we have to remember, Simi, for kids in care and young, um, particularly for Indigenous girls in care, they may have experienced sexual violence, um, which caused them to come into care to begin with. And um, the degree of trauma in their lives is very high. So this type of aggressive, incompetent interviewing, not only is it harmful to the young person, but it may cause them to not call the police in the future when they're victimized because the experience is so unpleasant. And certainly young people in care and Indigenous girls in care have told me that repeatedly, that they feel re-victimized when they reach out for help. So you don't think this was an isolated case? This was absolutely not an isolated case, and if you go back to that report I tabled in 2016, it was thorough and addressed all of those concerns, and, you know, I've had other cases. I had a case of a young girl that committed suicide in the interior. She reported a sexual assault at at her school, where she was sexually assaulted um, in a room at her school during school hours, and um, she was, you know, put in a police cell and interviewed as though she was, um, you know, the accused. And she was very traumatized by many things in her life, but that sexual violence was a contributing factor in her later taking her own life in utter despair. So I think we need to recognize that um, this 
interview, I think it has brought into the public attention again the fact that we do not have adequate supports. I mean, if you happen to live in a place where there's a child advocacy centre, you know, Sheldon Kennedy in Alberta has been very active. He stepped away recently, but setting up sexual assault advocacy centres. These are really helpful services and supports in our community, but for a lot of Indigenous girls and young women and those in care, they're not in locations where they can get to those centres and get the support that they need so that they're not interviewed alone. Do you think anything has changed? I mean, the RCMP came out this week and said, oh, we've implemented new training and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But do you think anything has changed? Um, I'm not I'm not confident about that. I think one of the things I was concerned about, it was, you know, I did this comprehensive report, the first of its kind in 2016. Um, I also testified as an expert witness at the Missing Murdered Women's Inquiry. They had a special hearings on sexualized violence uh, toward uh, young girls in care. Um, and one of the issues that I was very concerned about was, like, you know, I was never called in for a debrief with the RCMP. Um, in BC, of course, RCMPs are contract police. Um, but, you know, one would have expected to see a more robust kind of approach to that. And so if they have implemented changes and so forth, they certainly haven't tracked and reported on them. And I also found many instances where, for instance, there was a sexual assault, but we couldn't get a qualified police officer to respond and interview the young person, you know, maybe until two weeks later, and then you they drift away and they don't want to stay in the system. So, I, I mean, I like to hope there are changes, but the actual evidence of those changes, um, I haven't seen that yet to be able to say that's a fair comment. So even though there's been all this outrage this week, politicians saying this can never happen, do you think anything will actually change? Like, is this a good thing that this has been brought to light this week? Well, I think it's a, I think it's important it gets brought to light because I think the, you know, nothing speaks louder than the video that demonstrates the just the kind of incredible um, oppressiveness of this type of questioning and how it is in such an insult to the dignity of this young woman who is literally reduced to tears by having her story not just tested in a, in a normal, ordinary way, but utterly disbelieved and having an aggressive line of questioning. So I think the public seeing it might be helpful. The downside, though, is that, you know, the, the response is just too minimal and I know next month, Simi, the Missing Murdered Women's Inquiry will be reporting. I'm sure they'll be looking at issues of sexualized violence. Um, but I also feel that, you know, we, we, we cannot be kind of comforted into thinking that the world is a much different place in a few years because we continue to see very low clearance rates for sexual assault in B.C., and we continue to see high levels of sexual violence against particularly Indigenous girls and women in care. So do you think if a young girl, in particular if a young Indigenous girl today reported to the police a sexual assault, do you think she'd be treated differently? Well, it depends on where she is and who's with her. You know, like if it if it was a girl in care with no supports, I mean, it's, it's really going to be a difficult situation. I mean, if it was, a, you know, someone who had strong supports of, like I said, a child advocacy center, those kinds of supports and services, and were interviewed in a proper setting with properly trained people, that would be great. But I, I don't think we can take for granted that the supports are there. And um, I think we need to build those supports out. You know, for a long time, we, as you know from my role over a decade, mm-hmm. there was a lot of chopping of things for children because they were considered to be, you know, penny wise. And we found out later, pound foolish. 
But with respect to these issues, these are public services that we need to have. When you cut them, you don't train people, you don't set out proper protocols, then kids really do suffer. And a pathway to ongoing victimization for these girls is not dealing with them well the first time they have a complaint because then they're very easily preyed upon after that. Mary Ellen, thanks for your time on this today. It has been a very big TV week, and there is more to come. Of course, last night, as you just heard, big series finale of The Big Bang Theory. And coming up this weekend, the ending of Game of Thrones. So we wanted to talk about, you know, series finales. It's a very contentious topic, right? Some very beloved series end, and people are like, oh, that was perfect. Some of them end and they just make people so angry. We've seen some good ones, so we've seen some bad ones. What is the key to wrapping up a great story? Well, we wanted to talk about that now with the help of our guest, Bill Brio, who's a TV critic. You can read his tweets at, at Bill Brio TV. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. What did you think of the Big Bang Theory last night? Was that on last night? Oh, yeah. darn. I, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> you missed it. Of course it was on. <laughs> um, you know, I, I liked it. I thought it was. It did what series finales should do, and that's uh, reward people who have spent all these hours watching a show over all these years and gives them something to celebrate at the end. And not every show is able to do that. You know, uh, people who devoted six years of their life to watch Lost were quite upset when that oh, show yeah. ended and didn't seem to make any sense. Looked like they were making it up as they were going on. So you really have to respect those folks and just give them and put a bow on a show and do it that way. Yeah, let's talk about some of the ones that really don't go over very well with viewers. You talked about Lost. I was thinking as well, Seinfeld. Oh, am I ever with you on that? What a mess. I yeah. hated that. That's That's the worst one ever, I think, because... The expectations are so high. It's such a great series. It's still one of the funniest shows on rerun, and uh, that's 25 years later. But the last episode, they tried to do too much. They brought every, you know, we all remember the series. The four main characters were so selfish. and Yeah, and they brought in every person who'd ever had a good, like, you know, one line on that show and tried to parade them through, and it was just, it was too much. It got boring. Like, it was a funny idea if you... You just described in one sentence that, you know, they did all this, they ended up in jail. It seemed kind of funny, but over the, it seemed like it went on for two hours. I don't even remember. It was, it was and bad. It was way too long. What about, um, what about The Sopranos? Where would you put that one? I like it. I, I think that there's an example of, like Game of Thrones, I think it's very difficult to, to tie that together at an end and please everybody because some people are going to want, you know, there, there's different rooting interests there, so there's there's going to be people disappointed as to who ends up on the throne, no matter what they did. And I think with the Sopranos, whether a Tony Soprano lives or dies, some people are going to like it, some people are going to hate it. So David Chase, the creator of the show, he left it up to us. So we write our own ending. And I think in the the, the night it happened, a lot of people were shocked and disappointed. I think in retrospect, smarter and smarter way to uh, end the show. And, of course, a great song. They had Journeys, Don't Stop yeah. Believing, playing. That kind of helped. Um, but that one I thought was, was okay. The other one I really hated was How I Met Your Mother. Oh, yeah. I've heard a you lot know, of people I, complain. I didn't watch the show, but I've heard a lot of people complain about this. Well, you know, the premise of it was this dad talking to his kids about How I Met Your Mother. And you're always, of course, it's right in the title. Who is the mother? How did that happen? And... They went nine seasons, which was too long, and they introduced this character in the last season who was this sweet woman who mar- marries the guy, 
and then is killed. <laughs> they just like that. kill her off yeah. at the end. And then they do a 180, and they put the woman on who you thought all along might have been the mother. And that didn't work. just was a mess. Okay, and what other ones? Can you, like classic TV shows, can you think of any other ones that did not end well? I know MASH is always um, really high up on this list, too. MASH is one I didn't like. It, it was uh, two and a half hours, I'll never get back. It was longer <laughs> than the Korean War. Uh, you know it just you know i i don't know that was a pretty fine show uh, and we're going way back to the early 80s here for the finale and and i think the highest rated single episode of television for a long time yeah yeah so um a lot of people disagree with me i would think but i i didn't like it um seen elsewhere was another great show going way back again to the 80s and uh about a hospital and the way they edited it, uh, there was one of these senior doctors had a young child who was autistic, and he, um, the, the suggestion at the end of the show was he picks up a snow globe of the hospital, and, and the idea is that the whole series was in the head of, of this young child. Uh, I mean, too clever and kind of insulting if you've watched this whole series. It was kind of an odd ending. Okay. All right. I could see that. Now let's talk about some of the good ones. Like, first of all, I quite enjoyed the Big Bang one last night because it did, as you just pointed out, followed all of those rules. It satisfied everything that the loyal viewers have been watching for years. I think so. You know, and I think it showed some growth in the main character there, Sheldon, uh, you know, who um, basically was very selfish at times. He, He was such a genius um, but not very, not a lot of empathy there for others. Uh, very sort of blunt and direct. Um, but but he got it at the end that not doing this on purpose wasn't enough. That he still had to change his behavior and show some empathy. And and he makes this. I don't want to spoil it for folks, but there's some growth there. Yeah. At the end of that episode, which was pretty good. Beautiful. Okay. What other ones though can you think of as top of the list when you think of great series finales? Well, my favorite of all time, and again, going way back, but it's a character that actually, an actor who's appeared on Big Bang many times, Bob Newhart, plays Professor Proton, and uh, he had a couple of great comedy shows in the 80s. Oh, you're talking about the end of Newhart. Yes. So the end of Newhart, that folks might remember who are listening, uh, he had two great shows. The end of his second one, just called Newhart, he was a Vermont innkeeper. Yeah. He wakes up in bed and he rolls over and he's in bed with his first TV wife, yes. Suzanne Blachette. And that was great. She tells her he's had a bad dream and she just says, good night, Bob. And it, people saw that and they started laughing as soon as they saw the set. It was a very clever idea. Apparently, the inspiration was Newhart's actual wife, Ginny, who came up with it. Oh, okay. Interesting. What do you think about Breaking Bad? That would be number two for me. It, it's a great finale. And here's probably the best example. Even Newhart, we love, I love that because of that clever ending. The rest of the episode, not so great. But with the ending of Breaking Bad, every minute was designed to reward you for watching that show. And it was just beautifully executed. The very end of the show, again, we hear... Another wonderful piece of music, um, Bad Fingers, um, Baby Blue. And if you listen to the lyrics while you're watching, um, it sort of explains the entire series. It was very clever and smart, and uh, the payoffs were all there for all the characters. 
um, it was a happy ending and a sad ending, but I just thought a beautiful ending. That is a good one, too. Also, I actually quite enjoyed the way Mad Men ended. So did I. I thought it was clever. Um, I thought that the uh, the main character, um, you know, redeemed himself just in the nick of time. Uh, we, If people remember that show, he's an ad executive, and we see him on the side of a hill uh, in sort of a cult, and there, then he sort of comes up with this ending for this great ad, which, which was an actual campaign. The, the yeah. Coca-Cola's famous uh, taught the world to sing ad. And I had so gotten quite tired of Don Draper at that point, so when they wrapped it up like that, I was like, oh, okay, good, finally, right, his right. angst is over. <laughs> right, exactly. We were very tired of Don Draper. Uh, we get it. He's hopeless with women. Okay, but yeah, then exactly. his ending was pretty good. So I like that one. And um, I also like Six Feet Under. People who remember that show, mm. uh, it was on HBO a while ago, and it was about a family that ran a funeral parlor. And at the very last six or seven minutes, they showed you how all of them died. And some of the stories went on for 50, 60 years, but it was all done, again, under one uh, song, which carried through the uh, the storyline. And first time we'd kind of seen that um, right. or sort of, throw forward approach. Do you think when it comes to Sunday, I have a feeling that on Monday morning, there's going to be some angry people. There's angry people now. There's like a million of them. We want them to do it again. I like know. there's some exactly. petitions and, uh, you know, I think that, um, it's been fascinating. And I think that's what's unusual about uh, game of Thrones today. We watch shows and we binge them. They, they drop on Netflix or wherever and we sit in, on a Saturday and Sunday and we watch all eight episodes Game of Thrones, even it's an HBO show, and even if you're streaming it on Crave, say, you can only watch it every Sunday. They don't give you all six this season. So it's, people have been disappointed now for five weeks. <laughs> you know, like they've been angry. <laughs> the anger is building. There was one episode, it was too dark, you couldn't see anything. So, um, no, I'm sure there will be people upset on uh, this Sunday when it finally does end. Well, this is, they always say this is the golden age of TV right now, and yet it shows that it, it, you still, despite that, despite everybody watching TV, you can't please everybody, can you? No, uh, you certainly can't. So hats off to uh, Chuck Lorre and the Big Bang people for at least uh, coming close and not uh, having a million people sign a petition for him to do it again. That is so true. I take it you're going to be watching on Sunday night then? Yeah, you know, for sure. I, 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 you know, I like a lot of people, and there's probably be three million or so in Canada who will do that. Uh, I'll have to know how it ends. All right, I know we all will. Bill, thanks so much for your time on this. My pleasure, anytime. That is Bill Brew, who is a TV critic. You can read his tweets at Bill Brew TV. That's B R I O U X TV uh, on Twitter, and see what he has to say. I know a lot of people are going to be glued to their TV this weekend, not just because there's a bunch of sports events going on, but also because the Game of Thrones series finale wraps up on Sunday night. And you know that petition we were talking about, yeah, earlier in the week we were saying, oh yeah, like fifty thousand people had signed this petition. Well, now it's something like a million people have signed that petition. But no matter what, this is the ending, and this is the way it's going to be. They are not going to give this season a do-over. So Game of Thrones will wrap up this weekend. If you want to weigh in on our discussion about the best and the worst series finales of all time, yeah, drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. I'm sure you've got some thoughts on that. I saw Peggy had tweeted me to say Dexter was the worst series finale of all time. Uh, I don't, did I, do I remember how that ended? I don't remember how that ended. I'm going to have to look that one up. I used to watch that show too, and I can't remember how that ended. I'll look that one up. But what's yours? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. 
Let's get an update on what's been happening down in the United States today. Another twist and turn when it comes to the issue of abortion rights in that country. Today, it was Missouri's turn. That state's Republican-led legislature has now also approved a ban on abortions at eight weeks of pregnancy, nothing allowed after, with no exceptions for rape or incest or anything like that, and the governor is expected to sign it. The final approval to that was given by lawmakers in the House uh, today, as a matter of fact. Uh, The legislation comes after Alabama's governor also signed a bill on Wednesday, making performing an abortion a felony in nearly all cases. And this is happening at Republican-led legislatures around the United States. They are imposing new abortion restrictions. And essentially, they're doing it on purpose because they are trying to get a case up to the U.S. Supreme Court, hoping that the U.S. Supreme Court will overturn Roe versus Wade from 1973. That is the ruling, of course, that legalized abortion in that country. Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, and Georgia have all approved bans on an abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected, which can occur in about the sixth week of pregnancy. So obviously this is a very changing story in the last little while that these legislatures are definitely looking to go head to head with the U.S. Supreme Court on this. Adriana Diaz is reporting for CBS News from Missouri. Her report opens with the voice of a doctor who's been working at an abortion clinic in Missouri. It is one of the most egregious overreaches of governmental regulation that I have ever seen. Dr. David Eisenberg is the medical director at the only abortion clinic left in Missouri. He says abortion restrictions only endanger women who are bound to get abortions anyway. Those regulations do not make anybody healthier. They do not protect people who need abortion care. They just make it harder to get it. Missouri's abortion laws are already among the strictest in the nation. And if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, the new bill would automatically ban all abortions. The calls are just coming constantly. The phone is ringing off the hook. Kawana Shannon is the director of social services at the St. Louis Clinic. She says patients have been calling asking if abortions are still legal. This bill, if turned into law, will allow women to have abortions earlier on. Do you think that's not enough? No, it's not enough. A lot of women don't find out until they're already past that time. Hi, how you doing? But Missouri's anti-abortion advocates argue the bill is meant to protect women, especially those with fewer means. Most women don't want an abortion, and the number one reason that they feel they have no choice is because they don't have the finances. The bill increases tax credits for donations to pregnancy resource centers, clinics that discourage women from having abortions and provide emotional and material support. Women who receive abortions after eight weeks would not be prosecuted, but doctors who perform them could face up to 15 years in prison and potentially lose their medical licenses. Supporters of the bill say it's worth it. I had to be comfortable with the fact that it's legal to abort a child in this great country of ours. And so if that is the law of the land, I'll be comfortable with that too. For CBS This Morning, Adriana Diaz, St. Louis, Missouri. So with all of that talk in the United States about this issue, well, this morning here in Canada, Andrew Scheer, the uh, opposition leader, also had to deal with this. He had to, it was asked to respond to the fact that 12 of his MPs had attended anti-abortion rallies earlier this month, and he was asked about it by reporters, and here's what he said. Can you Mr. talk Sheer, about the abortion issue in English, please? Because the Liberals are fundraising on the fact that you had 12 MPs there. And in the backdrop of what is going on in the United States in terms of lifting, uh, of putting restrictions on abortion, banning them in a couple of states, I'm happy to they're address. suggesting that you will reopen it and 
push back women's rights. And this is typical liberal desperation politics. Uh, to distract from their record of failure and ongoing scandals, they're lashing out trying to find, uh, you know, inventing issues to try to uh, fearmonger and divide Canadians. The only person who is bringing up this issue time and time again is Justin Trudeau. I've made it very, very clear. Canadians can have absolute confidence that a Conservative government after the election in October will not reopen this issue. Okay, there you go. That's Andrew Shear talking about that because I have a feeling we are going to be hearing a lot about that heading into the federal election this fall. There were some new guidelines that were released this week from the World Health Organization, and they were all aimed at providing more information about dementia. It was their first recommendations to actually reduce the risk of dementia globally. This is something I know a lot of people are worried about, right? You you do those little brain quizzes, you do puzzles, you do all those little teasers because we think we have to keep our brain in shape to kind of ward off the effects of dementia as we age. So what are the things that we can actually do to make sure that we don't get dementia? Well, CKNW contributor Claire Allen spoke with a World Health Organization representative to learn more about what you can do to save your brain from cognitive decline. And here's what she learned. The brain is the most complex organ in the human body. It produces our every thought, action, memory, feeling, and experience of the world. The function of this important organ, which only weighs three pounds, can be impacted by trauma and certain diseases such as dementia. Dementia is a syndrome in which there is a deterioration in memory, thinking, behavior, and the ability to perform everyday activities. You most likely know someone who is living with dementia or has a loved one who has been affected by dementia. According to recent statistics, worldwide, over 50 million people have dementia, and there are nearly 10 million new cases every year. Now, the World Health Organization is out with a new set of guidelines that recommend specific interventions for reducing the risk of dementia. Dr. Nirja Chowdhury is with the WHO in Geneva, and she says there are five things you can do to save your brain from cognitive decline. Getting regular physical activity, not smoking, controlling weight, eating a healthy diet, and maintaining healthy blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood sugar levels all play an important part in reducing our risk of dementia and cognitive decline later in life. One of the strongest recommendations in the new guidelines includes increased physical activity. The WHO's report cites five studies which found that physically active people are less likely to develop cognitive decline and dementia compared to inactive people. We know that physical activity has a range of advantages, not only in terms of mental functions, but also for reducing our cardiovascular disease risk, for example, heart disease and stroke. The type of physical activity that is cited as having an impact on reducing the risk of dementia is aerobic exercise, such as running, cycling, walking, etc. The way that physical activity helps can be diverse. It can be either because of its direct beneficial effect on brain structures, it also can be because of its effect on, like I said earlier, reducing cardiovascular disease risk. And if you smoke, well, the WHO would like you to quit. While the quality of evidence behind this recommendation is lower, the organization still cites seven studies which find that quitting smoking is likely to be very beneficial. The WHO's report also worked to dispel some common myths about dementia like the myth that certain vitamins help fight cognitive decline. So if you're an active vitamin taker, according to Dr. Chowdhury, you may be doing more harm than good. 
there is dementia that is sometimes associated with deficiency of a certain vitamin, for example, vitamin B12. In the presence of some such deficiency with a prescription from your doctor, it, it might be useful to take these vitamins. But routinely taking vitamins uh, in order to reduce the dementia risk is not advised. In fact, in high doses, these might be harmful. Another common myth that the WHO worked to dispel is one that we've all heard before. It's the common idea that social activity can help keep people's brains sharp as they age. However, the WHO found that there is actually insufficient evidence that social activity reduces the risk of cognitive decline. Now, a lot of these recommendations may have you feeling overwhelmed, but Dr. Chowdhury says that it's better to change your habits now than not to change them at all. Currently, we don't have a cure, and in the absence of cure, it's important to think about what we can do to reduce our risk. And the good news is that there is something we can do, and that's what these guidelines tell us, that we can actually change certain lifestyle patterns or take treatment for certain health conditions, and this can reduce our risk for dementia. So again, the WHO's new global guidelines to reduce dementia include regular physical exercise, not using tobacco, drinking less alcohol, maintaining healthy blood pressure, and eating a healthy diet. For AM980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. You know, that's pretty good advice, but when you think about it, that advice, if you if we all applied it to our lives, think of the reduction that we would see in so many problem, health problems that we have, right? Not just dementia later in life, but heart disease and stroke and uh, diabetes and all sorts of other issues that we could improve by just following those four rules that the World Health Organization set out for the prevention of dementia later in life as well.